And take your Bibles and turn them with me to John chapter 3. <clears throat> and uh, definitely would appreciate your prayers as I am preaching because I am not 100%. Some of you may be able to tell that. Uh, low on energy, my voice scratchy and uh, struggling a little bit. But, um, but my trust this morning is in the power not of my word, but of God's word, which uh, we're going to read and which I'm going to preach. So, but I definitely would appreciate your, your prayer support to get me through the the next 45 minutes or so. So we are continuing our December Christmas series called Glimpses of Jesus, where we are looking at portions of the book of John that are helping us to grasp the essence of Christmas, of who Jesus is, of what Jesus came to do. And if we're going to go to text in John that help us to see the whole point of Christmas… How can we not go to John chapter 3, a chapter which happens to contain one of the most famous Bible verses in all of Scripture? It was actually read during the the candle lighting portion of the service earlier. You know it. It's John 3.16. Say it with me. For God the world that He… that whoever leaves should not perish but have eternal life. That's going to sound weird on the audio if somebody's listening to that online, but uh, thank you for reciting that with me. John, throughout his book, is very concerned about belief. He wants us to believe, and he warns us that terrible things will happen to us if we don't believe, like perishing. So, believe and be saved, disbelieve and perish. Simple, right? Well, in a way. Uh, But what makes John 3.16 less simplistic than we think is that different people can think believe means different things. Believe can mean uh, to, to hold an opinion, to accept a fact as accurate, to agree that something is true, to hope that something is true, but you're not really sure if it actually is. There are different definitions, different ways that we define belief. On top of that, what makes it more confusing is that the Bible uses believe in different ways, and it's not always used in a positive light. And so, if eternal life comes with a certain kind of belief, and condemnation remains on the person who does not have that kind of belief, then it is urgent that we really get a handle on what John 3.16 belief really is. And so, this text really is relevant for everybody in this room. If you're a believer, I hope that John 3 will solidify your understanding of the gospel and make you a better ambassador of it as you urge people to be saved. And if you are an unbeliever, my prayer is that this time will be worth your while as you discover the whole point of Christmas, and that that Christmas for you would become not just a story you know, but it would be about a person that you would embrace. So let's stand together now to read John chapter 3. We stand at Harbin's church when we read the Scripture text, the sermon text, as a reminder that what we are reading isn't just a a fairy tale, and it isn't merely informational and academic, and and it's not just somebody's fallible opinion. We stand out of honor and reverence for the words of our God, recognizing that this is inspired, this is infallible, it is always correct, and it is always authoritative, and it's always relevant. Uh, And actually, we're going to back up in our Scripture reading to um, the end of chapter 2, And we'll start at verse 23, and then we'll read on down through chapter 3 to 
verse 18. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, have mercy on me, a sinner, and have mercy on all of us who come to you this morning uh, as, as sinners and eager to hear the words of a holy God. Father... I do pray this morning that for those of us who already believe in you, who already trust in you, that our trust and our faith in you would be strengthened, would, would, uh, would be uh, enlarged through the, the preaching and teaching of your word. And Father, I pray for those who have come here this morning who uh, have not received the new birth, they have not been born again. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon any such person in this room and and would come upon them so that they might be changed and they might experience transformation, that their heart might change and that they might be born again, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We pray that that would happen this day and we pray that you would bless the, the reading and the teaching and the hearing of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to be doing this a lot with my water during the message, so thank you in advance for your patience. So, John in this section teaches us 
four critical things about belief and about salvation. And the first thing that we discover is, it's actually the top one there on the, on the screen, but I gave you a spoiler there for my, my second point. But the first one is, not all belief saves. Not all belief saves. Uh, if we're really going to get a handle on John 3.16, it's critical that we get a handle on John 2.23. Most people who think about John 3.16 never think about it with John 2.23 in the backdrop. So, why don't you take your eyes and go backwards in the text to, into chapter 2, starting at verse 23. Let's look at this again. It says that when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. So here, notice John talks about belief, doesn't he? Uh, but but if, if this kind of belief was the saving John 3.16 kind of belief, then don't you think Jesus would be thrilled about this? Uh, don't you think he would be full of joy? Jesus in another place talks about the joy that is in heaven when one sinner comes to faith. But Jesus doesn't respond with joy here uh, to their belief. He doesn't, re- doesn't respond in that way at all. How does he respond? It says he does not entrust himself to them. Now, that is actually a play on words in the Greek language. The words translated as believed and entrust are actually related in the original. You could read it as many trusted in his name, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Or you could read it as uh, many believed in his name, but he didn't believe them. Now, why? Well, look at verse 25. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus in his omniscience, in his all-knowingness, sees right through these people. He knows what is in the heart of men. And there's something about this kind of belief that's defective, and Jesus doesn't accept it. Text gives us a picture here of people who are interested in Jesus. They are excited about Jesus. They have a special interest in the miraculous signs that Jesus is doing. But Jesus' response tells us that that this isn't enough. Uh, This is not the kind of faith that comes with eternal life. And, And this insufficient faith is not uncommon in the ministry of Jesus. A few chapters later in John 6, people are, are, are so intensely excited about Jesus that they try to force Him to be their King. But Jesus in that chapter exposes their shallow faith, and He tells them that they're not seeking Him because they are primarily wanting Jesus, but because they want Him to perform more miracles and provide for them what they think they need. And proving his point, as soon as he refuses to do for them what they want him to do for them, they get angry, and they scatter, and they leave Jesus. You can read all about that in John chapter 6. That's the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. It's really a, a tragic ending to that story, because having Jesus and not having all the other things they wanted would have been infinitely better than having all the other things they wanted, but not having Jesus. Because Jesus is a treasure that is vastly superior than anything else that you could ever want. But many of the crowds that followed Jesus, they did not believe that. 
And in the end, they walked away because our natural sinful hearts do not see Jesus as supremely valuable. We see food and drink and sexual gratification and entertainment and husbands and wives and boyfriends and girlfriends and health and wealth and popularity as supremely valuable. That's the natural bent of the human heart, and Jesus knew it. And so there are many people who are excited about Jesus, but they're not really interested in Jesus per se as they are in what Jesus can do for them. We come to Jesus to fix our marriage. We come to Jesus to get off drugs, to get a job, to get healed of sickness. We come to Jesus because things are not going well with our kids. We, we come to Jesus when we're in a bind and we need to get out of it. We come to Jesus with our, our hands extended, give me this, give me that, fix this, fix that. We are a people more excited about Christmas than Christ, more excited about gifts than giver. And we can be like those false believers in the Bible so that when the miracles stop, when, when Jesus stops doing for me what I think that He should be doing for me, then I'm out of here. Forget Jesus. And that's not a John 3.16 kind of faith. Now, don't get me wrong. It is not wrong to ask Jesus to fix your marriage or deliver you from drugs or heal you from cancer. By all means, you should ask Jesus for those things. And I, and as your pastor, I'm praying for y'all all all the time that Jesus will be doing all kinds of stuff for you. So, so that's, that's fine to ask Jesus for those things. But if our primary interest in Jesus is a genie-in-the-bottle kind of interest, that really should be a red flag, and and we should ask ourselves, do I have John 3.16 kind of belief, or or is it more like a John 2.23 kind of belief? Jesus knows our hearts, the Scripture says. He he knows what is in a man, and and He won't be fooled by our superficial faith. He, He wasn't fooled by the crowds at the end of John 2. He's not fooled by us, and He's not fooled by Nicodemus, which leads to my second point, which is already on the screen. Salvation is not a work of man. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, we have talked about the Pharisees many times in this little sermon series in December, so you should already be a little bit familiar with them. Uh, And as a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have been a respected teacher in Israel, would have been a, a Bible scholar. He would have been extremely religious, trying to meticulously follow the laws of God as revealed in the Bible, as well as following all the detailed man made rules and applications of those laws that came down through the rabbinic tradition. So, So he would have been seen as a very good and very moral man, a man whose good deeds surely would earn him favor with God. John also says Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. That meant he was part of the Sanhedrin. You know what that is? That's the, the small elite group of men who sat on the Jewish ruling council and they had great authority and great influence in Israel. So he would have been well respected and, and extremely revered. What's more, we get the hint in verse 4 that Nicodemus is an older man. So he's, he's distinguished. He would have been well received and looked up to by everybody. And the icing on the cake, of course, is that Nicodemus is a Jew. And practically every Jew thought that their family heritage put them on the inside track uh, to the kingdom of God. 
So this man, more than just about anyone else in his day, appears to have it all together. He's got everything going for him. He is the best the Pharisees have to offer. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, your average human rabbi would have been overwhelmed and grateful and humbled to receive such a compliment from a man of Nicodemus's stature and influence, but, but Jesus isn't your average human rabbi, and his response would have shocked Nicodemus. He doesn't thank Nicodemus. He doesn't say, well, I'm humbled by your support. Instead, Jesus turns to Nicodemus and says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What a way to respond to a compliment. It's even a bit sharp, don't you think? Why does Jesus answer in this way? Why isn't he appreciative of Nicodemus's words? Because, go back to chapter 2, verse 25, Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. Just like Jesus sees through these crowds in chapter 2, verse 23, who were superficially drawn to Jesus because of the signs, so he sees through Nicodemus who comes to Jesus, and the first words out of his mouth have to do with him being impressed by the signs of Jesus. And Jesus sees through that, and what does Jesus see? Jesus sees in Nicodemus a man who is outside of the kingdom of God, which means that Nicodemus' priority is building his own kingdom, his own kingdom, and, and, and looking good, being good, following the rules, being respectable in society, being moral, climbing the social and religious ladder, and earning favor with God through his own strength, trusting himself, and, and, and all of those things ultimately are done to serve himself with, with his goals and his priorities at the center, which is the opposite of being part of the kingdom of God, where Jesus' priorities and Jesus' goals are at the center. And so Jesus sees right through all of that, and, and he, he looks this man in the eye, and he essentially tells Nicodemus, you are outside of the kingdom, which means that everything that you've done has been a waste. You're not on the inside track to heaven, you're on the fast track to hell. Everything that Nicodemus spent his whole life doing, everything that he worked for, everything that he built his life on and placed his hopes in, everything that he's believed has in three seconds been turned upside down because salvation is not a work of man. You cannot save yourself. So whatever John 3.16 belief is, it's not trusting in your family heritage or your good works or your religious deeds to save you. And Jesus' shocking words to Nicodemus obliterates not just Nicodemus's worldview, but, but every major religious system that exists outside of Christianity, which believes that salvation, at least in part, is a work of man. There's something I have to do. There's rules that I have to obey. There's, there's my own strength that I must rely on. And if I can get everything right and check off all the right boxes, then my ticket to heaven will be earned. I hope. Nearly everyone believes that, to one degree or another, whether they are overtly and vigorously religious like Nicodemus or a devout churchgoer, or whether they go to the bar every night and get wasted on booze. Both the churchgoer and the drunk think that they are good enough to make it because most people who believe in heaven envision themselves in it, and they tend to compare themselves to people they deem worse than them. 
And in their, in their own way, the, the churchgoer and the town drunk are both religious to the core. But if we're to believe Jesus, both the drunk and the churchgoer are outside of the kingdom and going to hell. If you bank your hopes on your own good works to save you, you are already doomed. The Scripture says in James chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So if you want to get to heaven based on your own righteousness, that's fine, but just know you have to be perfect. So good luck with that. Now, you may say, well, well, that's not fair. I know I'm not perfect, but I think I'm basically a good person. Doesn't that count for something? It would, if you were basically a good person. And the problem is, is that in and of yourself, you are not. In fact, the Scripture says that there is no one righteous, not even one. There, there is no one who seeks God. So not only are you not perfect, but guess what, y'all? You're not even good. Those are two very heavy hammer blows on our pride and our self-sufficiency. This means that everyone, Nicodemus, the churchgoer, the drunk, everyone stands guilty before God. Everyone in their natural state stands under the shadow of God's wrath and hell is on the horizon because salvation is not a work of man. Another implication of Jesus' words is that if Nicodemus is not yet born again, that means he doesn't have spiritual life. And if he doesn't have spiritual life, then he's dead. The Scriptures elsewhere refer to non-born-again people in this way. It refers to non-born-again people as dead people. Elsewhere, uh, the Bible describes the hearts of non-born-again people as hearts of stone. Corpses and stones. Corpses and stones. This is an encouraging Christmas message so far, isn't it? Well, think about corpses and stones. Unfeeling, insensitive, unresponding. That, that's the natural condition of man in respects to their relationship with God. Lacking any positive sensitivity to the things of God. Hardened and cold no genuine interest, no passion, maybe a passion for the miracles of God like the crowds in John 2.23, but not so much with the miracle maker. And here Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you don't need new religion, you need new life, because as of right now, you are as spiritually helpless as a corpse. So then that begs the question, how then are we saved? And that leads to my next point, that salvation is a work of God. Salvation is a work of God. Jesus talks about being born again, and in verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus explains what he means by being born again in verse 5. Jesus answered, truly I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirits. And Nicodemus is still struggling to follow here. Maybe you are as well, and you can relate. And he asked Jesus in verse 9, well, well, how can these things be? And then look at verse 10. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, are you a teacher in Israel? Are you the teacher in Israel? Almost like Nicodemus is really the prominent Bible scholar in Israel. And so Jesus is just astounded that, that he, he does not get it. He's incredulous. Uh, Nicodemus, you are the teacher in Israel. You've got all the PhDs. You've got the master's degrees, the doctorates, all those things. You memorize the Old Testament frontwards and backwards. If anyone should know what I'm talking about, it's you. So, if Jesus expects the teacher in Israel, the prominent Bible scholar in Israel to know about these things, then Jesus must be talking about things that have already been revealed in the Bible. In other words, Jesus is not giving new teaching here. To Nicodemus. If he was, he wouldn't be expecting Nicodemus to, to get it all. It'd be all new revelation, but, but, but Jesus doesn't expect that. Nicodemus should know about these things. So, so th- then we need to ask, <clears throat> as we uh, begin to think about what does Jesus mean, we, can, we need to ask ourselves, where in the Old Testament does it talk like this about receiving new life and water and the Spirit? Well, there's a number of places in the Old Testament that, that talk about this new coming work that God will, will do in regards to, uh, to, to uh, the, the Spirit and the, and the hearts of people. But, but Ezekiel 36, I think, comes closer to what Jesus is talking about than probably any of those other passages in the Old Testament. Listen to what God says to a rebellious, sinful, hard-hearted people starting in Ezekiel 36, 25. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Jesus is connecting being born again, I think, with this passage. And Nicodemus should have gotten it. He should have gotten the connection. I hope you're getting it. Take a close look again at Ezekiel 36 on the screen behind me. This scripture explains in detail what Jesus is talking about in John 3. We're we're told that that being a born-again person consists of God sprinkling clean water on that person. This represents being forgiven of the, stain, of the sin that stains us. The new birth also means being given a new heart and a new spirit. It's God taking a dead, cold, insensitive heart of stone, hardened to the things of God, and miraculously imparting life to it transforming it into a heart of flesh that is warm, beating, alive, sensitive, and passionate about God. And the result of that is that the formerly hardened and stubborn sinner will be empowered by God to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, what we're talking about here is a massive radical transformation that happens in a person's life. So massive and so radical that it's like you're a new person, which is why Jesus sums up Ezekiel 36 in two words, born again. By the way, born again is is more literally translated born from above, born from above. And that really, really helps to emphasize that this salvation, this new birth, is a work of God as opposed to a work of man. I want you to know something uh, in, in Ezekiel 36 here that is very important. 
Who is sprinkling the water making the person clean? Say it. You're allowed. Thank you. Who is grown-ups? Who is putting a new spirit in the person? Who, who is doing spiritual heart surgery, taking that old, cold, stony heart and changing it into a warm, living heart of flesh? And, and who is putting the Spirit of God in them? All right. A plus. God is doing the work. God is bringing about the transformation. God is, is, is doing that spiritual heart surgery. God gets the credit. God gets the accolades. God gets the glory for all of this. And God wants to make sure that we know that all of this is a work of God, which is why he goes as far to say in Ezekiel 36, I, I, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'll, I'll do it because you haven't been doing it. That's the implication. You can't do it. If you're sitting here this morning as a born-again person, you need to know that the reason that you are a Christian, the reason you are a Christian is not because you in your own strength and ability were able to overcome your own sinful, God-hating heart. You need to know that somehow, that, that it's, it's not the case that somehow you were able to give birth to yourself. Nobody in here as a, as a saved, born-again person can pat themselves on the back for anything in regards to the salvation that they now enjoy. Instead, you need to know that you were born from above. The reason why you are a Christian following God is because, according to Ezekiel 36, God has done a beautiful miracle in your hearts. Nicodemus in his pride believed that he could generate from his own strength and his own heart a goodness and an obedience and a righteousness that would make him acceptable to God. But the Scriptures are telling you that you can't do that. You can't be good without God. You can't truly obey God in the least without being born again. A born-again person is a totally new person with new, a new heart and new passions. The born-again person is not perfect. He still battles sin. And sometimes fails. Perfection doesn't happen until heaven. So this renewal, this heart renewal that's going on, it begins at conversion, but it continues throughout our life, and the, and the completion of that work is in heaven. Remember in Philippians where God says, uh, uh, he who began a good work in you will complete it, right? He who began a good work in you, that's the initial point of conversion of salvation. The promise is that he will complete it. But, but embedded in that promise, though, is, a, is the implication that it's not complete right now. We're, we're, still, we're still waiting for that to happen. So, perfection doesn't happen until heaven, but, but nevertheless, the overall trajectory of the life of a born-again person bends towards following Jesus and not away from Jesus. That's, why, that's exactly why Jesus says in John 3, 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Now, I like how John Piper explained verse 6. He said this, when you are conceived and born by human parents, you share in a human nature. And when you are conceived and born by the divine spirit, you share in his divine nature. Your first birth makes you alive to human life. Your second birth makes you alive to spiritual life. Our first birth knits our hearts affectionately to our earthly father. 
Our second birth knits our hearts affectionately to our heavenly Father. Our first birth gives us an appetite for warm milk and a cool reputation and hot sex. Our second birth gives us an appetite for God. Our first birth imparts a natural impulse to save our lives. Our second birth imparts a supernatural impulse to lose our lives for Christ's sake. Jesus continues to emphasize that salvation is God's work in verse 8. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, if Jesus is alluding to Ezekiel 36 in verse 5, he seems to be alluding to Ezekiel 37 in verse 8. Ezekiel 37, in that chapter, God's breath or spirit or wind, the Greek and Hebrew words can be translated any of those ways, God's spirit comes upon a graveyard valley full of old, dry, dead bones. And as God breathes on those bones, they are revived and God's people come to life. And Jesus is saying that is exactly what happens to everyone who is born of the Spirit. And and this work of the new birth is not controllable by man any more than we can control the wind. You can witness the effects of the wind, right? Jesus says you can hear its sound. You can hear it rustling in the leaves. There is evidence that the wind is working, and you, you can detect that, but it's not a human work. It's a superhuman work outside of our power. There was a uh, book uh, years, many, many years ago, I, I think it was, it was uh, written by Billy Graham, it was called How to Be Born Again. And, and, and Billy Graham was, was, was great in, in many ways, but, but the title of that book I think is somewhat of a misnomer because it almost makes it seem like, okay, you do these steps and, and you give spiritual birth to yourself. And that, that's, that's a little confusing, especially when we look at what, what Jesus is saying here, uh, just, as the, 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 just as you did not give physical birth to yourself, you owe that to somebody else, namely mom and dad. Uh, so the same is true with, with spiritual birth as well. You owe that to your heavenly Father. He did something to you and for you, and you should be praising God that He did. And this all harkens back to John chapter 1, verse 13. Uh, the very beginning of John's gospel. Uh, John 1.13 describes the new birth as a birth that happens not of blood, in other words, it's not natural, nor of the will of the flesh, in other words, not of our strength, nor of the will of man, in other words, not through our decision, but of God. I remember the night that I was saved, and that, that was a long time ago now. I am, oh my goodness, that must have been nearly 30 years ago. I know you're, you're, you're saying, how can you be that old, Demer? You just don't look that old. But yeah, it, it, was, it was that long ago. But I, I still remember it. I, I had been living a life in complete bondage to sin and selfishness for years. And, and I had grown so weary of it. I grew so tired of it. And, uh, and I went to chur- a church service on a, on a Wednesday night. And I went, away, I went away from that church service a totally different person than the man who walked into that church service. Uh, much to my shock, I, I realized that my desires had changed. It was almost like an out-of-body experience. I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> uh, my affections had changed. My reasons for living had changed. How I saw reality had changed. 
And all I wanted to do was follow Jesus and, and give my life over to him. And, and, and my friends thought that I was going through some sort of phase. Well, 28 years later, that phase is still going on. I never looked back since. And it continues. So what happened to me that night? Friends, I have to tell you with all sincerity that I did absolutely nothing that night to change me. It wasn't my doing. All I can tell you is that the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. People who knew me could witness the effects of the wind in my changed life, but what came upon me was a power beyond human manipulation and control. I was born from above, and the result was that I was changed. Because Christianity isn't about self-improvement, little tweaks here and there. That's what, that's what a lot of people think Christianity is all about. It's not about that. It's really about complete and total transformation that starts in the heart. That's what Nicodemus needed. That's what I need. That's what we all need. And that's why the Scriptures tell us that when you are in Christ, you're not merely a better you. You are a new you. You are a new creation. We know this to be true because when we have lost friends and family members and neighbors and we, we preach the gospel to them and they continue to resist God, what, what, what do we do? What's the other thing that we do for them? We pray. We pray for them. When we pray for them, we are implicitly acknowledging that unless God does something, they're lost. We're praying for the new birth to happen, that they would experience what we experience. So, uh, genuine belief is not a superficial attraction to Jesus, interested more in what He can do for us than Jesus Himself, uh, ba- uh, banking all of our hopes on the things we think Jesus should give us, like health, wealth, good relationships, a comfortable life, and so on. It's not trusting in our good deeds to save us. It's not trusting in our family heritage to save us. It's not trying to muster up some righteousness within ourselves. Instead, and this is my next point, my final point, true belief banks everything on Christ alone. So, we don't want to be too hard on Nicodemus. His head must have been spinning, right? I mean, everything that he thought and believed in and worked for has been completely obliterated in this conversation. So it must have been very difficult for him. But after all of these hard words, Jesus gives Nicodemus a word of hope. He takes Nicodemus back to the Old Testament again, and he reminds him of a very strange story. Nicodemus, uh, Jesus says Nicodemus in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What in the world is that all about? Well, Jesus is referring to an event recorded in Numbers 21. Numbers 21, you have Moses leading Israel through the wilderness. God's miraculously rescued them from slavery God's protected them. God's been providing for all of their needs. You remember, He gave them water from a rock, miraculous bread from heaven. God's done all these things for the people. And and how do the people respond? Gratitude? Thank you, O God. No, they grumble, they complain, 
They say, we loathe this worthless food that God has given us. And in loathing the provision of God, they also are loathing the one who has given them this provision. And in a spirit of ingratitude and hard-heartedness, they rebel against God and they reject God. And in judgment, God sends fiery serpents that start biting the people and the people begin to die uh, because of these venomous snake bites. And, and, And the people in desperation cry out for deliverance and look what God says to Moses. He says, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So what do you have here? In this story, you have a people who have rebelled against God. They're under God's wrath. They deserve destruction. They're cursed with these fiery serpents, but God tells them that in the midst of this death and condemnation, there is hope for new life. And all you have to do to receive this new life is look to this pole. And on this pole is a symbol of the curse of death that is on you. And as horrifying and as ugly and as repulsive as that curse is, God says, I want you to look at it. Look at what you deserve. Even though it's not pleasant to look at, look and be healed. Now, that bronze serpent on a pole was not magical. It was instead a sign it was a sign not just of God's judgment, but also of God's mercy and God's faithfulness to save any rebel who would trust in Him alone for salvation. Not trusting in themselves, not trusting in their own efforts, not trusting in their own works. God says, by faith, look to this sign of my judgment and this sign of my mercy, and then you will find the curse of death has been removed from you. This story is strange, and this story is scary. But this story is also gospel. It's good news that points to something even more strange that God will do later on in Christ. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. The rebellion of Israel in the wilderness is just a microcosm of the rebellion of the entire human race. We have grumbled against God. We have complained against God. We have despised and detested God and His provision, and we have loathed Him. We have sought to build our kingdom and not His. And in a spirit of ingratitude and stony hard-heartedness, we have rebelled against God, and the penalty for our sin is the curse of eternal death, which does not happen by fiery serpents, but by a fiery hell where the fire is never quenched, the Scripture says. And what does God do? God tells us that in the midst of this death, in the midst of this condemnation, there is hope. There is hope for new life, and all we have to do to receive this new life is look to this pole, look to this cross, and on this cross is a symbol of the curse of death that is on you, because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Paul says in Galatians 3.13, how? 
by becoming a curse for us. Jesus was lifted up on a pole, lifted up on a cross. And on the cross, God took our sins and placed them on Jesus. And God then poured out his fiery wrath on Jesus. He was cursed by God in the place of sinners. And as horrifying and as ugly and as repulsive as that curse is, God is telling you that I want you to look at it. Look at what you deserve. Look at the sign of the curse, at the sign of your sin and condemnation, even though it is not pleasant to look at. Even in all of its terror and loathsomeness, by faith, look to Jesus. By faith, look to the cross. It is a sign of God's judgment, but it is also a sign of His great mercy. And know that as you look, by faith, in Him, the price for your sin is being paid. Look and be healed and be free from the curse of death. As the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And why did God do this? Because we deserve it? Because we're such wonderful people? No. We're we're, we're stubborn sinners. We don't deserve it. I'm not wonderful. Instead, Jesus says He did it for love. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That's the essence of Christmas, my friends. He saw a people who were depraved and hard-hearted and rebellious and totally lost, and He loved them anyway. And so God gave His Son not merely to be a cute and cuddly baby in a manger. He, he gave His Son to be a sacrificial blood offering, nailed to a wooden pole, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the forsakenness that we should experience in hell. To what end? So that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And to believe means to repent of your sins, first of all. If you say you believe, but you refuse to turn away from those sins, you don't have John 3.16 belief, because the Bible says that faith without works is dead. It's not real faith. Because if you don't desire to repent and follow Jesus, it means you still want to build your own kingdom and be at the center, as opposed to having Jesus at the center and being concerned about His kingdom. And that means you really don't believe in Him. It means you still believe in yourself. But also, to believe in Him means not just repenting of your sins, but also repenting of your goodness. Repenting of every time I have trusted in my good works. Nicodemus pridefully believed he was good. And that the religious good works he was doing made him better than others and worthy of God's God's kingdom. But all of those things were actually rooted in prideful self-sufficiency. Ephesians chapter 2 says that you are saved by grace. And you're not saved by works lest you boast, lest you brag and think that you are great. Because to trust in our good works inevitably serves our kingdom 
and puts us at the center, puffing us up and making it about us. And that's just as sinful and offensive to God as blatant immorality. You see, both to to turn away from God and pursue sin, seeking life and satisfaction there, and to pursue self-righteousness, self-salvation through works, seeking life and satisfaction there, both communicate belief in self and not in God, contrasted with true belief, which banks all hope on God and God alone. And so just as those snake-bitten Israelites were helpless to do anything to save themselves, but had to, by faith, look to that pole and trust God alone. So the call today is for men and women to realize their helpless condition and trust exclusively in Jesus' sacrificial work on the cross, to trust His payment for sins, not to trust your spiritual resume or your heritage or your religiosity or your own goodness or Buddha or Mohammed or Mary or in any priest, pope, or religious guru or in any other thing to give you life besides the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect lamb, the perfect substitute, the perfect sacrifice, who alone can rescue you from the curse of sin and death forever, and hoping in that is John 3.16 belief. 2,000 years ago, an angel visited a young carpenter named Joseph, who was betrothed to a virgin named Mary, and he told Joseph that his fiancée was miraculously pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the angel said that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their, his people from their sins. The name Jesus, that's Yeshua in the Hebrew. It means the Lord saves. <clears throat> Because it's Christ that saves. It's not that Christ does 50% of the work and we do 50. It's not that Christ does 90% and we do 10. Or or even Christ did 99% and we did 1%. As if we can get 1% of the credit and glory. Every time we say the name of Jesus, it should be a reminder that the new birth we experience and the salvation we enjoy is 100% Jesus and 0% you. The only thing that contributed, the only thing you contributed to your salvation is your sin that brought him to earth in the first place. So trust him and trust him alone and be saved. I love Psalm 68. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. Now, if you preach that gospel to folks, some people might say, What are you trying to do? Condemn me? Who are you to judge me? I'm sure some of you have heard that a lot. Well, Jesus has the answer to that question in John 3, 17. He says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, I don't need to condemn anybody because apart from Christ, you're already condemned. That's the point. God's condemnation already hangs over your head because of your sin. You're already guilty. You've already been bitten by fiery serpents. You're already a dead man walking. And if you refuse to believe and bank everything on Jesus, if if you turn and reject Him and you decide you will go it alone and trust in yourself, nothing for you changes. You remain in in that state of condemnation. But the word gospel doesn't mean condemnation. 
The word gospel means good news. And the good news is that Jesus came into the world to save the world. And though you have been snake bit and cursed and the venom of death is running through your veins, all you have to do is lift up your head, look to the cross and be healed. Be cleansed of the venom. Be cleansed of sin. Be remade. Be renewed. Be transformed. For the first time in your life, live. Eternal life doesn't mean living forever. Uh, People in hell live forever. Instead, eternal life is a quality of life that comes with knowing Jesus Christ and experiencing the forgiveness and the peace and the joy and the satisfaction that comes in a relationship with Him that begins now and continues into eternity, into heaven, where we will experience ever-increasing abundant life and joy in God. And to receive that eternal life, it doesn't take you being religious. It doesn't take you trying to be good or going through great lengths to save yourself. All it takes is you looking to the cross and the man that hung there for sinners, and all that takes is belief. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that this Christmas, uh, it would be a special Christmas for us, that we who believe would glory in the reason why Jesus came to be born and become a human in the first place, and it was to hang for us. Father, help us to exult in those things more than presence under a tree. I I struggle with this, and I'm a pastor of a church. I still still struggle with with getting more excited about gifts than giver, than, than you. And so, Father, I pray that you would purge us all of that wrong attitude and help us to put things in proper perspective and that we might see and savor and enjoy you as the greatest gift of all this Christmas. Father, if there's anyone who walked into this church building unbelieving, I pray that they might walk out experiencing what I experienced almost 30 years ago, walking into a church building unbelieving, walking out, believing, changed, transformed, having experienced the new birth And that first initial evidence of the new birth was a crying out to you for forgiveness and for help and for change. I pray that any person here not born again, you would help them now to lay down their pride and humble themselves before you. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.